Hey, it's Carrie. I am interrupting here to tell you about a show I wrote and star in playing off-Broadway this December. It's called Six Chick Flicks, or a legally blonde pretty woman dirty danced on the beaches while writing a notebook on the Titanic. It is six of your favorite chick flicks coming together in one night of hilarious parody. Now Magazine calls it pop culture parody at its best. It plays December 12th to the 21st at the Soho Playhouse. For tickets, go to sixchickflicks.com. I hope to see you there. Okay, now back to the episode. A Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On a misty February morning in 1896, a Kentucky farmhand named Johnny Hewling is pruning the branches of an apple tree when, in the distance, he spots a horrific sight. Just past the stable under a tree, he sees a woman's body spattered with what appears to be blood. Her dress is pulled up over her head and her arms are splayed out. He's too scared to get closer. He rushes to the neighbor's house to get help. Word spreads quickly in the small town of Fort Thomas. By the time the police arrive, onlookers are already gathering around the poor woman. Detectives first think she's a sex worker from a nearby brothel. But when they pull back the dress to identify her face, they're horrified. She has no head. She's been decapitated. And after searching the area with bloodhounds and even draining 35 million gallons of water from the nearby reservoir, Her head is nowhere to be found. Without a face, they trace the serial number on her size three shoes to a shop in Greencastle, Indiana. That shop has only sold one pair of size three shoes in that style. In fact, they sold them just a few days earlier to a woman named Pearl Bryant. But who was Pearl Bryant? And what could she have possibly done to deserve such a gruesome fate? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Pearl Bryan is 23 years old, and she is the 11th of 12 kids in this wealthy family in Greencastle, Indiana. Okay, a little bit about Pearl. Pearl has blonde hair, blue eyes, and she's known to be really trusting. She confides in anyone who she thinks is a friend. She's really sweet. She's kind. And they describe her face as having soft features and that she has really good manners. Greencastle is a small town. There's only about 4,000 people. But a lot of folks do presumably move through it because it is at the crossroads of multiple railroads to Indianapolis, Cincinnati. And Pearl was very popular at Greencastle High School and taught Sunday school at the local church. But at 23 years old, she's still living at home with her folks. She doesn't seem to have any suitors or any particular goals. She just seems content to stay with her mom and dad. Would we say in the late 1800s that a 23-year-old unmarried woman would might, might be called sort of like old maid vibes? Spinster that, vibes? I mean, we don't love any of these, you know, adages to women. But 
I mean, according to her family, Pearl doesn't seem that interested in marriage, right? Which, again, it's the late 1800s. This goes really against social norms. The only thing that really piques her interest at this point is her six-year-old orphaned niece named Mary. After Mary's mother, Pearl's sister, passes away, Pearl steps in and becomes sort of a surrogate mother to Mary. I mean, Pearl... Pearl loves Mary. She plays with her every day, and they even sleep in the same room every night. The two are inseparable. Pearl's parents even call her the little mother of Mary. Pearl also takes Mary to visit her mom's grave, uh, which is Pearl's sister's grave. And Pearl, when she goes to visit, tells the sexton at the graveyard that she wants to occupy the plot right next to her sister one day, and then he better keep it looking green. We love that, but I mean, not for me, because I obviously know all words in the English dictionary, but what exactly is a sexton? It's like a gravekeeper. It's like a sexy gravekeeper. It's like a sexy gravekeeper. Don't they also toll the bells, the bell toller? Yeah, they are for whom the bell tolls. Um, (laughs) So Pearl, when she says this to the sexy gravekeeper, it feels very ominous is what I'll say in retrospect that she says this because at the time she says it, she is only 23. But like you were saying, in a lot of ways, she doesn't know what she's going to be doing in her future. She's a bit aimless. Her dad really wants her to do something. He wants her to start a business or get some work. He's like, Pearl, you can't stay home forever. And in January of 1896, Pearl gets a letter from an old friend in Indianapolis asking her to come visit for a week. Sounds like an adventure. Her parents are like, definitely go. But Pearl's hesitant because she really doesn't want to leave Mary behind. She takes such good care of her, and she's really worried that Mary will have nobody to sleep with and no one to play with. And so she asks her sister, who, by the way, does have a family of her own, can you stay with Mary till I get back? After a lot of convincing and reassuring that Mary is going to be well cared for, Pearl's sister drives her to the train station. She walks with her until Pearl steps onto the platform and waits for her train. And as the two of them separate, it's this really sweet moment where Pearl's older sister starts blowing kisses at Pearl and Pearl starts blowing kisses back. And there's clearly just a lot of love in this family. Pearl's sister sees that Pearl is holding back tears when she leaves, but she doesn't say anything about it and neither does Pearl. Little do they know that's the last time they will ever see each other. Seems like a straightforward story, right? She gets a call from a family friend to visit in Indianapolis, and she's hesitant and she goes. But knowing what we know about how her story ends, it's hard to imagine what goes wrong on this trip. But as it turns out, Pearl's not being entirely honest with her sister, her parents, or her beloved niece, Mary. She always intended on being on that train that day. But she wasn't going to go visit Indianapolis. Pearl was getting on a different train to Cincinnati. Let me paint a picture for you. Can we get a few train sound effects in here? Pearl is dressed to the nines. It's 1896, so we see it as being dressed to the nines. It could just be common travel wear. She's got on a plum-colored dress, wool stockings, a corset, a fur cape, and a black velvet hat with ostrich feathers and roses on it. I'll be honest, it sounds like a lot of layers. I I don't know if the train has AC. 
But also, I think this goes to show sort of like the money she comes from, right? I mean, she has she's dressed to the nines and she's sitting on that train looking respectable. But deep down, Pearl is hiding a very dark secret. She's on her way to meet a young man, one who she desperately needs to see. The man she's going to meet is this guy, Scott Jackson. He's been sending her letters for almost a year now. He actually lives in her hometown, but most of the time he's in Cincinnati where he goes to dental school. When Pearl's train gets to Cincinnati, she gets off the train and she immediately hails a horse-drawn cab and catches a ride to the dental school. While she's there, she just starts asking anyone who will talk to her if they know where Scott Jackson is. But she can't locate him. So she goes to the Palace Hotel downtown because Scott had told her in some letters that that's where he's staying, but he's not there either. So Pearl ends up checking herself into this little cute hotel called the Indiana House, and she uses a fake name. She doesn't want anybody to know she's there. And over the next several days, she just spends her time searching all over town for Scott. And I can't imagine the difficulty of searching for someone in a big city like this. I mean, it's like a needle in a haystack vibe, right? It's 1896, so it's not like she can just find Scott on Facebook, obviously, or text him, you up, where you at? No, all she really has to go off of are these letters that he's written her from a couple of days ago. So she's going in between his hotel and school and trying to find him over and over and over again until finally she finds him. Scott is there with his roommate, Alonzo, and it is not the warm welcome that she's expecting. No, Scott is not happy to see her. They get into a heated argument almost immediately, which bystanders are taking notice of because Pearl's there with her crazy ostrich feather hat looking like country mouse in the city. So they notice her, not to mention... She's now crying very loudly in public. And Scott's not helping the situation. He's yelling at her. One witness to this fight hears Pearl say, I'm going back to my home. And Scott Jackson, you'll have to answer to my brother Fred for this. That sounds like a threat to me. Pearl might have every right to be mad at Scott. It seems like she and Scott Jackson go way back. In fact, by the time Pearl is confronting him in January of 1896, Scott had been courting her for the past year. The two of them met in Greencastle, Indiana, where Scott lives most of the time when he's not at school. But Scott's a bit of a player. He was seen walking around town with a bunch of different women, all of them seemingly taken by his charming personality. But it's Christmas of 1894, a little over a year ago, that he meets Pearl. He's introduced to her by Pearl's cousin, Will Wood. And Scott and Pearl immediately start a letter correspondence. Now, we don't have access to all the original letters, but in excerpts from the reporting on Scott's letters to Pearl, he says things like, I hope to see you, and I am very truly yours, and refers to Pearl as his very dear friend, and even on one occasion tells her, I only wish I might find a way of showing you my real friendship. Folks, it's sexting in the 1800s, and it is some racy stuff. It does seem tame, but it's important to note this is the late 1800s. This thing. They'll go to jail. (laughs) Cover the kids' ears. 
It's really intense. Cover the kids' ears. We should have put a censorship warning on this episode. Over the summer of 1895, Scott calls on Pearl several times, and they ride horses together around town. But that's not the only thing Pearl rode. Whoa, content warning. (laughs) I had to. (laughs) You had to. Well, Scott will later tell his boss, Dr. Gillespie, that he and Pearl got intimate in his dental office. Well, that's a different kind of cavity filling, I'd say. I wasn't allowed to say road, and then you said that. (laughs) You started it. You started it. I had to go for it. I mean, we can't start it and not finish it. Between the sexy gravedigger in this, this episode is getting out of control. little sexy. I mean, they say they got intimate in the dental office. I don't know if we can say exactly how intimate, but I guess... Do we think they went all the way? Possibly. It does seem like a health and safety violation and not something that you would freely admit to your boss. But I guess from one dentist to another, they're like, been there, done that. I don't know. Either way, it's clear that Pearl and Scott had a thing going that surpassed the letters and was physical. And after Scott returned to Cincinnati Dental School in the fall of 1895, the two of them continued to correspond through letters. And Scott reminisces in one of these letters of how he misses the ladies of Greencastle, but one in particular misses him more than any of the others. Pearl Bryan. I guess compared to some of the other dames Scott's been seen, Pearl's a real catch. But now that the two have consummated their relationship, that creates some real problems for Pearl. This is the late 1800s. A woman's virtue is her honor And it would appear that Scott took that from her when they had that sexy dentist office rendezvous. Her whole reputation at this point is at stake. If anyone finds out about this, she's done for. And unfortunately, the evidence of the affair is growing bigger and bigger. Because Pearl Bryan is five months pregnant with his child. I get that unplanned 1800s pregnancies are risky for unwed ladies. Like, you can't really, you can't do that. But I do just want to point out that I think Pearl would have been a rock star mom, the way she treats Mary, so sweet. And I imagine if circumstances were a bit different, for instance, if it was chill to be like a single mom, she'd have been really excited, I think. The risk of being an unwed mother in this day and age does feel like it's life and death. And I will say there is a way to remedy the situation in her eyes, and that's marriage. I mean, no one's inventing the wheel here. Unwed pregnancies have happened since the beginning of time. So it feels like she's coming into this going, I have a plan. We just need to get married. Help me keep my honor and let Mm -hmm. this child be born with a mother and a father so that society will accept it. But it takes uh, it takes two to tango. So yes, I just can't imagine feeling so powerless in this moment, um, and just I we can't use the phrase boy, but he does feel like boy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like he's like I want to keep womanizing. I want to keep this playboy mentality. He's just a playboy. He's just a punk. I hate him. I do. I hate Scott Jackson. Okay, spoiler alert. I hate him. Don't you? 
Yeah, but I feel what like... You, what's there to like of him? He's like drilling cavities in the dentist's chair. I don't like this guy. I don't like him one stupid bit. When Pearl confronts Scott in Cincinnati, she is already five months pregnant. But no one's the wiser. She was already known to be a little heavier in stature, so it isn't super obvious she's gained weight. Her family has no idea. And also the amount of clothes she's wearing. I'm sure it's easy to hide, but the Mm -hmm. confrontation does not go well. And as we've said before, her solution is to get married to rectify this situation or else her reputation is completely ruined. But it's met with complete denial. And according to witnesses, Pearl threatens Scott that if he doesn't make this right, her brother Fred will do something to pay Scott back. And who knows what that could mean. Yeah, I think it's worth noting here that women don't even have the right to vote at this point in time. Being a wife and a mom, that's pretty much the only thing women are expected to do. And they're expected to do it in that order. It's a way bigger deal than not being the norm. As a woman, you're already a second-class citizen. But if you have a baby out of wedlock, it's, it's just way worse than that. It really is life and death for Pearl. But Scott, this guy who claimed to care about her, couldn't care less. Because he's a dude and he'll probably be okay. So Pearl's pleading with Scott to save her, and to a lesser extent him, by having them just marry. But Scott insists that she must have an abortion. He will not marry her or be the father of her child. And she's left with no choices. And after this very public fight with Pearl in tears and Scott waving his arms around like a lunatic, they both take some time to chill out. And then that night they meet for dinner in the wine room at Wallingford Saloon. Now, we don't know the nature of what was discussed at this dinner. It's not clear if Scott says that he's going to give in to Pearl's demand and marry her, or if he just rejects her and is like, hey, no dice, but let me buy you dinner on the way out. Okay, that's not a good consolation prize. Also, he should have just been buying dinner regardless, but okay. Well, either way, they do sit down to eat and drink one last time before Pearl boards a train back to Greencastle. Pearl has her bags with her by the table, and she's drinking a sarsaparilla soda. What is sarsaparilla? I'm probably very wrong, but I think it's like a root beer, but healthy. It's like a health beverage. I think people use it as like a healing tonic, like bitters are used, right? Okay, I did look it up, and it was described as tasting close to root beer. So you heard it here, folks. I am a genius. I know everything. Okay, now Pearl is rocking a sarsaparilla, and Scott is drinking a whiskey. They have dinner, and I and I can't help but wonder what on earth they talked about after their contentious conversation before and him not agreeing to do anything to help her. It had to be just incredibly awkward, to say the least. But during the dinner, the waiter working at the saloon that night is a guy named Alan Johnson, and he looks over and he sees something really strange happen at the table. When Pearl isn't looking, he sees Scott slip something into her drink. Now, Alan wants to say something, but he's a black man, and he would only be putting himself in danger if he accused a white man of drugging a woman. The odds are, first of all, probably no one would believe him. Or, if they found there were drugs, they'd probably blame him. 
But he's almost certain that Scott has slipped drugs into Pearl's soda. And the thing is, he's right. Scott has laced her beverage with cocaine. After they're done eating, Scott's roommate and friend, Alonzo, shows up at the saloon. At this point, it's very clear that Pearl is not acting like herself. The drugs that he slipped her are starting to take effect, and she's having a really hard time controlling her body, and her senses are all askew. And Alonzo helps Scott get Pearl and her bags into a horse-drawn cab, and all three of them leave the saloon together. So it's about midnight now, and Scott and Alonzo are forcing a drugged-out Pearl Bryan into a horse-drawn buggy taxi driven by a man named George Jackson. No relation to Scott. They tell this cab driver that Pearl's sick, and they offer him $5 to drive them across the river to Kentucky Highlands, but they won't tell him where they're going specifically. But George, he feels this is not right. He doesn't know exactly where they're going. They're just kind of directing him on where they want him to go, turn after turn, you know, go right here, stay straight, blah, blah, blah. But he can hear Pearl is fighting against Scott and Alonzo in the back. He hears moans, like a struggle coming from the back of his cab. But like the waiter, Alan Johnson... George is a black man with little to gain and a lot to lose if he challenges these two white guys. So he drives where they want him to. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. They want to drive across the Ohio-Kentucky border to a suburb called Fort Thomas. It's only about four miles, which is about an hour's long journey by horse buggy. But while they're crossing the bridge into Kentucky, the sound of shattering glass startles George. He can hear a commotion inside the carriage as Pearl seems to be fighting Scott and Alonzo. George is now terrified and tries to flee the carriage. He drops the reins and starts to jump off and run. But before he can actually make a move, he hears something. And it's the sound of a gun cocking right behind him. When he turns, Alonzo is there, pointing a handgun in his face, telling him that he has to keep driving or else. So George reluctantly returns to the buggy to continue driving. Now that his life is threatened, he is stuck there, driving them wherever they want to go. The commotion in the back seems to have settled down for a bit, but at this point, George doesn't dare turn around. He just keeps his eyes on the road until he's told to stop at around 1 o'clock in the morning. They're about four miles outside of Cincinnati now, on a dirt road next to an orchard. Scott and Alonzo tell the cab driver to wheel the carriage around and wait for them to return. Then they get Pearl out of the carriage and over the stable fence and out of George's view. After about 15 minutes of waiting there, George hears what he describes as a peculiar noise. But that is an understatement. Whatever this noise is, it scares George so much that he abandons his carriage and runs four miles all the way home to Ohio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We can't be sure exactly what George heard that night. We also don't know exactly what happened to Pearl after she was forced across the stable fence by Scott and Alonzo. But based on the evidence, what we find out later, and how we found her body, here's what we do know. Once Pearl, Scott, and Alonzo are out of view of the cab driver, Scott attacks Pearl. And although Pearl is drugged with cocaine, she still puts up a fight. She tries to make a run for it, hoping to save her and her baby from a man she once trusted. Police will later find two sets of footprints in the mud. Footprints that lead to Pearl's discarded shoes. It seems like they fell off while she was trying to escape from Scott. Scott grabbed at her from behind, ripping her corset off her body. And then he stabs her in the back of the neck with a dissecting knife from his dental school. He gets a hold of her, but she fights back. And her hands have cuts on them that tells the story of her grabbing that knife and trying to fend it off with her bare hands. But Scott overpowers her. Scott then begins cutting off her head while her heart is still beating. There is blood everywhere. We can only imagine the last moment of Pearl's life was filled with terror, betrayal, and fear. This beautiful, kind, loving person is victim to an evil man's fragile ego. I have an online yoga instructor that always says to the class, y'all breathe in. And I do feel like in this episode, this is time to check in and say to everyone, y'all breathe in. Ooh, I wasn't. I have to. Yeah. That is so hard. That's a hard scene to describe. I can't imagine that this was this guy's only recourse. Why not just call Pearl a liar? I doubt they had paternity tests back then. Why did he think murder was the only way out of this situation? Yeah, DNA wasn't a thing at this time, and neither was Maury. So I guess uh, he could have run, but I think the thing that I was that I keep going back to is just why did he have to kill her? Like that to me is the most distressing and alarming part of this is there were so many other options. I mean, going through what we know, we know that she threatened him with her brother. So maybe that's what motivated him to do literally the worst thing imaginable. But it's just so heartbreaking. And I and I know at the time it was not accepted, but I just can't imagine her family not still loving her. I don't know. It's just like, ugh. He was this manipulative dentist school jerk who just wanted to keep what little power he had in his life intact, and that involved staying single and continuing to use women at his whim. 
and Pearl stood in the way of that. I can't believe I'm saying this, but after Scott Jackson cuts off Pearl Bryan's head, he wraps it in his overcoat and puts it inside Pearl's leather suitcase, and then they take that carriage that George left behind back to Cincinnati that night. On their way, they toss Pearl's suitcases into the Ohio River, but not the one with her head in it. They keep that. They return to the boarding house that morning, and immediately they go to the saloon across the street where the bartender knows them. They then pass him the suitcase they're holding and ask if he can keep it safe behind the counter. The bartender takes the bag and is surprised to feel something like a bowling ball rolling around inside of it. Other than that, he doesn't pay much attention to it. The next evening, Saturday, February 1st, the two men come back to the saloon, grab the bag, and take it away. Meanwhile, in Greencastle, Indiana, Pearl's family is becoming increasingly worried. Pearl was supposed to return home from her trip to Indianapolis on Saturday, but her sister waited for her at the train station, and Pearl never showed up. They also haven't received a letter from Pearl since she left either, but Pearl's father keeps reassuring everyone, Pearl's all right, probably her friend just persuaded her to stay through the weekend, and she'll be back Monday. It's so out of character for Pearl to be missing at all, but her dad trusts her so much that he believes in his heart that she will be okay. On Monday, word of the horrific beheading of a girl in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, is all over the news in Indianapolis and Cincinnati newspapers. The family talks about it that morning. They recognize this tragedy, but none of them have any idea that it could be their pearl. But there is something in the story they're reading that keeps sticking in their minds. Pearl's missing, this girl is unidentified, and the clothes that the newspaper describes the unidentified girl is wearing sound awfully familiar. She was described as wearing a checkered dress. And they know Pearl took a dress just like that on her trip. Thank goodness, they say, the body had cloth-topped shoes, which Pearl's mom is quick to point out. Pearl doesn't have those kind of shoes. Then Pearl's sister corrects her. Yes, Pearl bought some recently. I picture the whole table just going quiet when she says that. It feels like every time the fear creeps in at the possibility that this unidentified body is Pearl, the family finds a way to push it aside. That's not our Pearl. She's still safe, they keep telling themselves. That evening, Pearl's sister goes back to the train station to wait for her sister again, hoping that she'll see Pearl step off that train and ease her worries. But once again, Pearl doesn't show up. That night at dinner, Pearl's mom and dad can barely eat. They're sick to their stomach. They're so worried. And then they send a telegram to Pearl's friend in Indianapolis to see what's going on. Where is Pearl? Why isn't she coming back? The next day, they hear back from Pearl's friend. Pearl never arrived in Indianapolis. Oh, I'm not sure what's going through Pearl's family's heads at this point, but it's so sad. It seems like her dad is in total denial, and he just keeps telling everyone, Pearl's all right. Something has happened, obviously, but she'll come home. She'll explain it. And the image of them just 
at this table talking to each other and trying to balance um, making each other feel better with being honest about their fears. It just haunts me. I I also think in this story of her family, I think it also speaks to who Pearl was. Her whole family trusted her. She was independent. She was responsible. And this part of the story just breaks my heart because we know what's happening or what's happened, but the Brian family's hopes are just slowly getting chipped away until they discover the tragic truth about what happened to their Pearl. Back at the scene of the crime, there is a crowd of people who have gathered to view Pearl's body. Farmers and ranch hands and their families came as soon as they heard about it. It's the talk of the town before the police even have time to respond. Detective Cal Krim and Jack McDermott arrive a few hours later. And at first... They think it's a case that they've seen before. It's just another, quote, woman of shame from a Cincinnati brothel killed in the line of duty. They see it all the time. But when they discover that the body doesn't have a head, they know this is something entirely different. The police brought in bloodhounds to search the area for the head. At first, the dogs are drawn to an unused cistern, which is a thing that stores water. And next to that cistern, they discover some blood on some rocks. When it becomes apparent that the head is not there, the hounds keep sniffing all the way to a nearby reservoir, and the hounds refuse to leave that area. So the police have to make this very bold, very expensive decision to drain the 35 million gallons of water in the reservoir, hoping that a head will surface. For two days while this is happening, crowds come around and watch as the water runs out with bated breath. I guess before podcasts, this is what true crime lovers did, I guess. They're just they watch hoping. a cistern drain. They watch a reservoir drain of 35 million gallons of water, just hoping to see a head. I guess, I don't know, I think it connects me to the past where I think we've all had this like crime curiosity. There is this curiosity I think we all have that we can identify with here, at least, But the head is never found in the reservoir. In the days following the discovery of the body, the police have also drained parts of the Miami and Erie Canal. But again, they can't locate the head. Detective Krim and McDermott have to get a little more creative in their efforts to identify this body. Lucky for them, the victim is wearing tailored clothes, with markings that identify the shops they were bought in. And in particular now, they're going to focus on the shoes because the soles of Pearl's shoes are marked with a brand, Drew and Selby. They also have a serial number. So using this information, they're able to trace the shoes to Lewis and Hayes Shoe Store in Greencastle, Indiana. And as it turns out, several of those shoes had been sold before the murder, but only one in the size three, the size of the victim. That's how police, in just a matter of days, identified Pearl Bryan's body. And they arrive in Greencastle to inform the family. Pearl's parents and sisters are devastated to hear the news from Detective Cal Krim. But he has worse news to deliver. During the autopsy, their medical examiner discovered that Pearl Bryan had been pregnant when she was murdered. She would have given birth to a baby in just three months. And judging by her family's reactions, 
none of them knew. Detective Krim and McDermott deduce that the motive for her murder must be related to her baby, and that the man they're looking for would be a suitor. Through Pearl's cousin, Will Wood, they learned that Pearl had been seeing and corresponding with Scott Jackson while he studied at dental school in Cincinnati. And apparently, back in the day, this was enough evidence to make an arrest because as soon as they find this out, the detectives send word to the Cincinnati police to arrest Scott Jackson for murder. And at 10 p.m. on February 5th, 1896, Scott Jackson is arrested while trying to enter his apartment. When they arrest him, he has blood stains on his shirt and scratch marks all over his arms. He claims that the blood is from bedbugs and that he had been scratching too hard. And Scott, I can't think of a man that deserves bedbugs more than you, but police are not buying it. And for good measure, and frankly, why the hell not, the next day they just go ahead and arrest his roommate, Alonzo, too. The two of them lived together, so the police just assumed he must be involved. They literally arrested Alonzo just for the crime of being Scott's roommate. And little did they know that, in fact, he was very, very involved. Right away, they separate both of them, putting Scott and Alonzo into different rooms to interrogate them. And they accuse each of them of the murder and claim that the other man had turned on them and admitted it. That is enough to get both men to admit to some part in the crime, although both of them claim conveniently that the other did the actual killing. When the police retrace Scott and Alonzo's steps, they find a few familiar faces to flesh out their tale of events. They talk to the waiter at Wallingford Saloon, that guy Alan Johnson, who tells them that he saw Scott slip something into Pearl's drink the night of the murder. They're also able to locate the cab driver, George Jackson, who tells them about the fighting in his carriage while he was driving and about that peculiar noise that made him run away from the scene of the murder. Both men identify Scott and Alonzo as the people with Pearl Bryan that night. And then the police find the bartender who looked after Scott's bag the morning after Pearl Bryan was murdered. And he tells Detective Krim that the bag felt like it had a bowling ball in it. But now he realizes that must have been Pearl Bryan's head. While they arrested them for not enough evidence, the evidence that they do get after the arrest is mounting against Scott and Alonzo. Not only confessions and witnesses, but physical evidence, too. Scott's overcoat, which was used to wrap the head up, is found in the sewer. Pearl's suitcase is found in the Ohio River, and Scott's handkerchief is found covered in blood. Backed into a corner, these men's stories start getting progressively kookier. Scott keeps saying, I have epilepsy, and when I have a fit, I'm not responsible for anything I do, nor could I possibly remember it. And Alonzo, you know, not to be outdone, he has his own bogus story about how Scott actually hypnotized him and influenced his every move. But just as it seems Detective Krim has the crime completely solved, a surprise confession throws a wrench in his case. On February 10th, 1896, an Indianapolis woman named Mary Hollinsworth sits down with the Indianapolis police superintendent at around 8 o'clock in the evening, and she casually confesses to the murder of Pearl Bryan. She came of her own accord, 
claiming to have important information to share with police. So May's story is that she agreed to give Pearl an illegal abortion, and she gives Pearl an abortion in a stairwell. And then sadly later, Pearl dies from complications of the procedure. And May heard about Pearl dying because Scott let her know he's the one that, of course, is then left to dispose of Pearl's body. The superintendent, upon hearing this story, is dumbfounded, especially because once she's laid all of this out, May tells him that she just has to go. He asks if she understands that she just confessed to murder, or at the very least, an illegal abortion. But May just says that, you know what, I had to tell you the truth. And so the Indianapolis police escort May to Cincinnati, and detectives there are really quick to debunk this story. She doesn't have any proof of what she's saying, and her details are spotty at best. And in the end, May Hollinsworth admits she just wanted attention. And the thing is, she got her wish. Her name is all over the news alongside Pearl Bryan's. In Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, the story is called the crime of the century. I mean, one might even call it a crime of a lifetime. And I got to be honest with you, I don't love that we are talking about her because if she was alive today, she'd be thrilled that she's being talked about in a podcast. Well, first she'd go, what the heck is a podcast? But then she'd go, my name is being mentioned. I am absolutely thrilled. Well, she wasn't the only cuckoo that came out of the woodwork during this period. Someone also wrote the family posing as Pearl and saying, I'm alive, but I gave my clothes to someone, and they must be the dead body. And that cab driver, George, that got scared out of his wits, he began the craziest side hustle reciting the story next to a wax figure that was made to look like Pearl. And he's doing all this for money, but then the figure melts, and the next step is they just start charging people at a discounted rate to see the grease spot the figure left behind. In the end, this case seems like a simple one. Scott Jackson killed Pearl Bryan because he got her pregnant. He didn't want to face the consequences of his actions. And his friend Alonzo helped him do it. The two men are indicted on murder charges and tried before a jury of their peers. And 113 witnesses testify at Scott Jackson's trial. Many of these same witnesses show up for Alonzo's. But both men are found guilty and sentenced to death. But even with the conviction, the family doesn't have the full closure that they deserve because there's still so many questions that are left unanswered. Why did Scott resort to murder when it seems like there were so many other options that could have happened before then? They could have gotten married. He could have tried harder to convince her to get an abortion. Or Scott could have simply let Pearl go home and face the consequences that come after. That's not to say that any of these options were easy, but... How was killing Pearl Bryan any easier? And why in the world did Alonzo participate in this murder? What did he have to gain? It makes you wonder if Scott had some sort of leverage over him or if Alonzo had some motive that we don't know about or understand. And lastly, we still don't know what happened to Pearl Bryan's head. Even after Scott and Alonzo are convicted of killing Pearl Bryan, they refuse to admit what happened to it. 
They tell a bunch of different stories. They say they buried the head in a sandbar. They say that they threw it into the river. They say they incinerated it at the dental school. And all of those stories were thoroughly checked out by the police, but none of them had enough evidence to confirm actually what happened to it. And there's no telling which of these stories is the true one. In Scott Jackson's last written statement before his execution, he claims full responsibility for the murder of Pearl Bryan. He says that Alonzo had nothing to do with it, but it's too little too late. And we're never going to get the answer to some of those questions because on March 20th, 1897, Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling are hanged in Newport, Kentucky. Pearl Bryan's headless body was buried in Forest Hill Cemetery in Greencastle, Indiana, next to her sister, just as she'd wished. And that sexton she joked with right before that fateful trip does his part to keep the grave looking nice and green. And of Pearl, he says, I'll keep my promise to her, though I never thought I'd be called on to do it so soon. Can I tell you something that freaks me out? Yes. I'm sorry, okay, God, so, that was stretching when I said that. Let me just say that again. Yes. So while Scott is in dental school, which I picture he went to with Steve Martin from Little Shop of Horrors, another terrible <laughs> dentist, while he's in <laughs> dental school, the head of a woman was left on an undertaker's stairs outside the undertaker's house. And the crazy thing is, is the guy that lived across the street from that undertaker is Scott. And, you know, I read this in the paper and it says, oh, this is an unfortunate or strange coincidence. But it it makes you wonder because it is one thing, right, to commit a murder. But decapitation, beheading someone is that's a really specific choice, right? Well, I mean, yes. I think that they did that because they thought that without the head, they would not be able to identify the body. So they thought they could just get rid of it. And I think that's why they did that. And I think her head, I think they burned it in the incinerator at the dental school. That's just my thought on what they did to dispose of it. The fact that they never came forward and admitted to it even when they were about to be executed, I think is just so absolutely cruel, so malicious, so disdainful. But I guess what can you expect from someone who murdered someone they claim to care for? But I really do believe the fact that the police were able to locate her based on what she was wearing was definitely not something the murderers considered. Yeah, I I was very struck by the sort of poetic description they gave of Pearl in the Chicago Chronicle. Um, I I just thought it really humanized her. Mm. Um, So I'm just going to read it in part. Please do. She was not beautiful. She was plump with a face and manner that indicated candor, innocence, and a good heart. She was singularly free from the gossip of the day, cared nothing for fashion, though she dressed well. She was a blonde with expressive blue eyes, but her mouth was spoiled by uneven teeth. Her hands are described as beautiful. She was herself. She was 23 years old at the time she was murdered. The reason that I like this descriptor, even though it has some negatives in it, undeniably, 
is that when you watch these shows and someone has died like on Dateline or something, they're always talking about them, saying that they had an amazing laugh and a good heart and they lit up a room. And it is the same descriptor for every single person that dies. And it starts to just become this thing where you don't even believe they're actually talking about a real person anymore. It's just what we say when someone's died. And there was something about this highlighting both some positives and some negatives that felt like, you know, you're really telling me about a real person. Right. A fully fleshed out human. Yes. It made it feel real to me to be like, she doesn't really care about clothes, but you know what? She sometimes looks pretty good. Um, Not very pretty, but I'll tell you what, she has great hands. Like, I just, at the end of the day, I felt like you're actually giving me a real descriptor and we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this gives me a lot of fodder for when I eventually write your obituary. I'll Uh make note. I'll make note and I will start the pros and cons list now while you're alive. Because I think in death, it has to be harder. Highlight the negatives. But I will say, like you said before, it's like she was herself. And I think Mm -hmm. that is truly the most beautiful line of that description. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. The book The Betrayal of Pearl Bryan by Larry Tippin, an article in the Chicago Chronicle entitled Pearl Bryan's Story, and an article in the Indianapolis Star entitled Mystery and Pearl Bryan Murder Still Unsolved. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.